Welcome to the Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. As we continue our discussion of local content policies in mineral oil and gas projects. Today, my guest is Jeff Jeepel. Jeff is the founder and managing director for the Mining Shared Value Initiative at the Engineers Without Borders, Canada. This initiative works to improve the development impacts of mineral extraction in host country through increasing local procurement by multinational corporations. Through this work, Jeff is also a community manager for the World Bank's Extractives-led Local Economic Diversification Community of Practice. Jeff, it's wonderful to have you on my show. I remember when we first met at the PETA conference in Canada. It's nice to have you. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to talk to you about this topic, especially now. Sure. So, Jeff, especially with respect to your own work, when we think of local content, primarily we are thinking of the global south. And I just was wondering whether you could give us a different perspective. Is there a parallel with Canada's experiences with the First Nations people? I mean, there's a huge parallel. Actually, we started our initiative very much focused on on Africa, to be honest. And then uh, the more and more we were looking into the topic of local procurement, we realized that Canada has quite a rich record uh, of efforts to uh, promote local procurement, but very much focused on the Indigenous uh, people. And so there is quite a lot of effort to try to buy locally uh, from Indigenous-owned businesses. And there is a similar need, and, and to be honest, as a Canadian, it's always been uh, a source of shame that we have such underdevelopment in our own in our own backyard, so to speak. Uh, and so there's been a lot of efforts to to improve that by providing more economic opportunities to, to these remote communities. And um, I think, uh, in a lot of ways, the mining industry has stepped up. Uh, particularly, uh, I think right now, mining is the number one employer of Indigenous peoples in Canada, for example, in the private sector. So, so when you when we think about the efforts by the Canadian mining industry to improve the lot of the indigenous and, and, and national the First Nation people in Canada, what is the approach in your opinion, and how does that approach to local content differ from what you've seen in Africa and other parts of the developing world? Mm-hmm. I mean, Canada has a bit of a mixed system because we have a federal government and provincial governments and they kind of share the resource governance. That makes it a bit complicated, but the key point with Indigenous uh, peoples is that the main kind of structure that we're working with now are what called impact benefit agreements, which is basically Canada's version of a community development agreement or a CDA. And so for the most part, even though we don't have any local content requirements legally in legislation, essentially any new mine that's being proposed has to have IBAs with Indigenous communities to be able to prove they have acceptance from the community. And these IBAs tend to always include local procurement as well as local hiring provisions. Um, And now existing mines that have been around for 10, 20, 30 years, they are also essentially being required, so to speak, uh, by community pressure to sign new IBAs, which then also bring in new local content provisions. So I would say that is the main kind of thrust of, of local content, um, you know, approach in Canada. Uh, it's a little less so in any sense of municipal governments or, or sort of, you know, non-Indigenous. Uh, you know, you'll see, for example, in Australia, there's a lot more political pressure on, on local sourcing um, outside of Indigenous communities. But in Canada, it's, it's very focused on Indigenous communities. 
So if I'm correct, quite apart from the IBAs in Canada, the First Nation people also have land rights. And essentially, you have a parallel system wherein the federal government provides certain rights, and but others are reserved for negotiation with the First Nation people. Can you just tell us briefly how that works, especially with respect to the goal of driving community development? Mm -hmm. Well, there's quite a complex legal environment. Uh, and the reason why I think that a lot of indigenous communities, not all of course, but many have done very well with local content with the, the natural resource sector is because of this legal leverage they have. And so in Canada, um, legal title uh, is really recognized. Um, indigenous communities have a lot of ability to prevent projects if they're not consulted properly. Um, a lot of Supreme Court decisions, in fact, most of them have went the way of the indigenous community when there was a dispute between a, a resource country or a company or a forestry company and an indigenous community. So that has given them a lot of leverage to be able to demand uh, concessions or, or benefits, so to speak, when, when um, trying to you know, develop a community development agreement or you know, making sure they have a piece of the pie when a new project comes to, to town. And I think that's a little bit different than, for example, the United States, which also has you know, indigenous communities, but the rights are just not near as, as strong in this regard. So we do see a lot of ability of indigenous communities to use that leverage to you know, essentially you know, demand these provisions uh, or else they won't allow the, the project to go ahead because they have a lot more power to stop a project. And now some, um, some land agreements, for example, now, actually mandate the use of IBAs. So, you know, part of the land agreement that was signed uh, basically says you have to make a, a IBA in, in order to uh, to proceed with these kind of projects. And now the Northwest Territory government also um, is, I think, in the finalization of their new laws, which basically makes it so that as a condition of any, any new uh, mining license, you need to have an IBA. So there certainly is a strong legal backing for the indigenous communities backing, or, uh, leverage, shall we say, to, to be able to ask for local hiring and local procurement uh, provisions. So as you and I know, Jeff, it's one thing to have strong legal parameters and legal provisions. It's another for those to be enforced and it's another for the enforcement to translate into meaningful and tangible economic value. To what extent would you say that this is the case in Canada? So, I mean, I think it's a very mixed picture and admittedly part of the problem is we don't have a lot of data on this. Um, unfortunately, to my mind, um, most IBAs are, are confidential. Um, and so you can't really see exactly what the commitments were made and, and therefore be able to see um, from an outside view what, what has taken place and which commitments have been led up to. But we have seen quite um, a number of successes um, there's a few kind of high profile ones like the Tall Ten Nation in British Columbia, um, for example, which basically through impact benefit agreements and working with, with resource companies, forestry, and a few other key sectors um, have essentially went from, from you know, full unemployment to, to, uh, to full employment uh, over the course of sort of 20, 30 years, um, slowly building up their, their capabilities from just building houses all the way to now doing much more technologically uh, advanced subjects or uh, work such as engineering. Um, so you do see a lot of successes that have really made a huge difference. 
that said, I mean, there's a lot of there's a lot of places where there's concerns that the the agreements are sort of um, a little bit superficial in in the sense that yes, they provide local procurement, but ultimately non-indigenous communities, or sorry, non-indigenous people are actually doing a lot of the work still, even if the, the businesses are owned by indigenous. So there is a wide range uh, of outcomes, um, but I do think there's quite a lot of really, really successful stories to, to look to, to try to raise the, raise the experience across the country. Do you think that these experiences and the lessons land both, uh, you know, the successes and, and less successful uh, cases, do you think they might have resonance uh, on the African continent in, in any way? Is there lessons, uh, lessons there that can be drawn to improve the impacts of extractives in Africa, for instance? Absolutely. I, I think the model uh, of impact management agreements and, and for that matter of CDAs more widely is a really powerful model that should be used in Africa and, and everywhere for that matter. Um, I think one of the issues with, with local content regulations in Africa and, and elsewhere is that they can be a bit a bit difficult to to work when they are across the entire country, right? They're they're focused on a, you know a national target, for example, or or perhaps um, you know local procurement plans, but they're not necessarily tailored to the local community and recognizing the local realities, right? I mean, a national target can never really take into account the widely varying levels of development across you know, 10, 10 mine site communities. So because of that, I think IBAs, or for that matter, CDAs, offer a real opportunity to make an agreement that is really based on local realities um, that, that can propel progress forward. And it, you know, uh, so I think there's a big model there. I think the other piece of that is that in a lot of indigenous communities in Canada, what they have is what they're called an ECDEV corporation, an economic development corporation which is essentially owned by the indigenous group. And that's a good model too, because you know, these models, these, these corporations essentially own a number of businesses that supply the mine. Um, they also, for that matter, get into other things like you know, petrol stations and, and, and restaurants, for example, and hotels. So the, it's a bit of a built-in diversification model as well. So I really think there's a lot of lessons that can be learned from, from the IBA model in Canada that could be applied and I don't think, for example, that there's any reason why communities in, in Africa can't, you know, essentially demand something similar in terms of agreements. So I think that's quite a quite an interesting model. And maybe just quickly, um, Mongolia does already have um, a requirement that a community development agreement be reached as a condition of mining license. Now, it's not particularly well enforced to my understanding, but, you know, we are seeing this, this sort of CDA model start to creep up a little more uh, around the world. Yeah, I have visited the Rio Tinto copper mines and some of the gold mines in, in Mongolia and met some of the communities there. And uh, they were very enthusiastic about using the provincial government as the voice for the community and negotiating certain concrete agreements. And so you are right that there has been some traction. Here is what cynics say, Jeff, about mining companies having a direct relationship of that magnitude with communities and it is that it has the effect at least in countries that don't have a federated system of creating a de facto new system above the existing one the other yeah. counter argument is that actually that dispensation works when you have a robust project with a very long lifespan 
because you can sustain it and you have time to transist from current model to something more permanent. But that if it is a small project, you create a fracture in the system. And, and I wonder whether you, you, you have a view on, on the, those uh, counter arguments. I mean, I think it's a, it's definitely valid to, you know, have concerns about one community essentially having more power than others because of an, you know, agreement with mining companies. And, and even in Canada, we have this, this issue where you'll see one mine is surrounded by, you know, six indigenous communities and, and there's a bit of a, a struggle for who is sort of the most entitled to the benefits and, and there's quite a lot of conflict sometimes. So, I mean, there, there is that issue. I, I think though, that, that said though, I mean, I think the solution to that is, is transparency and, and, you know, making a model agreement. And I think, for example, which, which may be a problem in Canada because we have you know, provinces and territories and that makes it difficult. But if, for example, you were to make a national framework that said, you know, uh, CDAs must follow this, this pattern and, and that kind of thing, I think it could be dealt with in a way that, that would alleviate those concerns. Um, I, I do think that you kind of want to keep tax revenue you know, somewhat out of that though, because it is, it is, it isn't fair, for example, if, if all the tax revenue goes to the indigenous community or, or the local community at the expense of, of the rest of, of countries. So, I mean, again, I, I think it's a, it's a valid concern, but I think it's one that can be mitigated. Um, and uh, what was your second question? Pardon me? No, no, it, it was very much along the same lines that it creates fracture, but it was also that Okay, so let's give the advocates of this model the benefit of the doubt. My second mm -hmm. question was, what then happens to that community when the project comes to an end? And mm -hmm. that the communities become particularly vulnerable or dependent on the project, especially if it is a small one with a short lifespan. That was the question. How do we make this sustainable and how do we transist from it being entirely driven by the project? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I, I think that the the way you approach in natural resource projects through a community development agreement and through the use of things like economic development corporations are, are, are hugely important management skills and negotiating skills that can be then used for other sectors, right? I mean, I think if you build up an economic development corporation whose main um, goal is to, to supply the mining sector, you've created a new essentially corporation that wasn't there before. And now you can start looking at other things. Maybe it's tourism, maybe it's forestry, whatever the other potential um, markets are. But I mean, I think the, 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 the overall structure of, of economic and social development that, that comes with building up economic development corporations and, you know, building up negotiating skills are completely transferable to, to other sectors. And I think, you know, that's to, to me, the argument that you wouldn't build up you wouldn't build up some economic benefits and you wouldn't build up these skills simply because, you know, in, in six or seven years, the, the, the immediate market is going to go away. I, I know I just don't think it's a really sound, um, a sound argument. I think we, you know, that the key is can to do what you can with the opportunity that comes up and then use that to diversify into other markets, you know, use, use the, use the skills and capabilities, the negotiation skills and management skills to then find new markets afterwards. Yeah, I think it's an interesting point, which is to say that the whole drive is not because we think local content per se is the end, but it's just the means. You, you are leveraging mm -hmm. that particular resource in the knowledge that with that critical mass, you migrate and, 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 and for that matter, integrate other opportunities 
but at least you use this as a foundation would be your argument. Is that about right? Absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's, it's basically taking the, taking the chance to, to use the, the revenue and the employment to, to make some more permanent skills and capabilities and, and structures that can then be used elsewhere. You've spoken briefly, and, and this will be my, my last question, if I may. You've spoken briefly about the importance of negotiating skills among others. And that is also something that often uh, is raised when we speak about communities getting engaged either with the government, the national government, or the investors directly to negotiate their share of the pie. And cynics always say that, well, it's all very well to have that provision, but are they, the communities, capable of meaningfully entering into complex negotiations? And so the suggestion is that, you know, it's much about muchness because it's not a level playing field. How does Canada deal with this, quite apart from having a legal provision in place? How do we make sure at the negotiation table there is enough capacity to leverage that piece of legislation? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I mean, I think negotiating capabilities is everything. And I think that's the same. And I think that's the same in, in African governments uh, in their local content quest. I mean, the, the countries that have put in place stronger mechanisms to to enforce local content and, and spot new opportunities and, and work with industry uh, are the ones who've done better. And the same thing happens in Canada, where the indigenous communities that have a really strong uh, local government and they have a strong economic development corporation which is able to identify opportunities and make deals i mean that's the those are the ones that really succeed which is why you know I, again i i'm i'm a little bit alone on this in in canada i, I don't i don't really agree that uh ib should be confidential because i think there's a better chance of of you know better performance that, that everyone can see um so i think that you know the key is better negotiating skills how to do that is it is you know um, is through trial and error and experience and bringing people in. We are seeing some pan-Canadian efforts now where particular Indigenous uh, communities are, are doing a really good job sharing experiences, and I think we need to see more of that. Um, there's, I don't, you know, as far as I understand, there's not a lot of um, you know, significant government help to sort of train up Indigenous communities on this, but I think there could be more government funding that would be a way to, to, to improve that. Um, but I do think that sort of case studies sharing best practices you know is a, is a really good model and i could you know there's it's better if if successful indigenous communities can show other successful or other indigenous communities the, the way forward rather than having some sort of canadian government program that that sort of you know teaches them i think let, let's let's use existing examples and and show show indigenous communities what's already been done in their own in their own communities that's fantastic. Well, we could talk, of course, forever, as you know yourself, about these issues. But, but uh, you have pricked my curiosity, and uh, I hope that we can continue the conversation because I have, further down the road, another series of uh, episodes wherein I discuss community relations. And it's, it's clear to me that you have a lot to bring to bear in that space. So if it's all right, I'll impose on you again when that time comes. But for now, I want to thank you very much for your time and for your insightful uh, thoughts and to invite listeners to join us again on Sheila Kama Extractive Podcast. You can subscribe on Spotify. Jeff, thank you very much for your time and I'll talk to you again soon. Thanks so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Take good care.